Okay, would you turn uh, to Mark? Mark chapter 12 from verses, verse 35 to verse 37. Mark 12, 35 to 37. And the title for this message this morning is Jesus is the God-man. Jesus is the God-man. Now, if you recall... Um, Jesus and a scribe had a conversation together and it was a marvelous conversation about the greatest commandment. And though Jesus and the scribe both agreed that the greatest command was to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself, yet Jesus' response to the scribe was earth-shattering. It was shocking. He said to the scribe, if you recall, you are not far from the kingdom of God. You're not far from the kingdom. What in the world? I mean, there's no doubt that this scribe had believed with all of his heart that he was already in the kingdom. The, the Pharisees, back then, they thought of themselves as to be the elite, uh, the elites of the religious leaders. And to be a Pharisee who is also a scribe, an interpreter of the Word of God put together were to be the elite of the elites, the, the heavyweight champion of all those that are qualified to be already in the kingdom of God. We'll be talking much about that next week as Jesus rebukes those scribes, the very next passage. But suffice for today to say that this statement, you are not far from the kingdom of God, it was shocking to this scribe. You can be a religious leader but lost. It's completely possible to have studied theology and to have a godly family and to go to the temple of God yet entirely lost. How scary, eh? Now, what was it that um, stood in the way between this scribe and the kingdom of God? What was that wedge? that held this man back from being all the way in the kingdom of God. Well, if you recall in the last sermon, I would encourage you, if you haven't yet listened to it, just to listen to it, what held him back was his lack of understanding of who Christ is. Without knowing Jesus Christ, the best you can do, even with all piety and all self-discipline, is to slip into hell while your hands are sliding downwards on the gates of heaven. But knowing Jesus, knowing Jesus Christ, is the very key that unlocks the gates of heaven. Knowing Christ intimately brings down the iron fortress of the kingdom of God and turns it into a bridge so you would march right through it. And had this scribe known, 
had he realized who Jesus truly is and embraced him, had he dependent, depended on him, had he embraced all the truth that the Word speaks of Jesus, God would have replaced the words, you are not far, with the words, be of good cheer. Rejoice, you are in the kingdom. And so without wasting any time, Jesus now places his index finger on the real issue that held this scribe from being in the kingdom. This passage that you're about to read is about the true identity of Christ, Jesus Christ. So I ask you, place your soul in, in, in the shoes of this scribe. Open your heart to who the Scripture says about Jesus. Embrace Him, rest in Him as we read this passage and we begin to unfold what it says. Let's read together, starting from verse 35. And Jesus began to say, as He taught in the temple, how is it? that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David. David himself said in the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So in what sense is he his son? And a large crowd enjoyed listening to him. Now again, what's going on here? Let's just take a couple of steps back and look at this uh, passage here from the bird's eye view. It's just to have a look uh, at what was going on to understand why Jesus said what he said. Uh, this is Tuesday Passion Week, three days before Jesus, the God-man, would give up his spirit and redeem his people. Now, on that day, on Tuesday, Jesus was assaulted by the religious leaders. They interrogated him in the form of asking him four questions. These questions were systematic, they were strategic, they were very well calculated, and the purpose of those questions were intended to eliminate Jesus, to discredit, discredit him before the watching crowd. Now, each of these questions was unique in its nature. Let me remind you, the first question was a personal question about his authority. The second question was a political question about paying tax. The third question was a theological question about resurrection. And the final one that we looked at for several weeks was a, a biblical, a scriptural question about the law. And Jesus' response to those questions were pride-shattering. I mean, he exposed the hypocrisy of the religious leaders to the point that if you look at verse 34, the end of verse 34, it says, After that, no one would venture to ask him any more questions. So in effect, what it's saying here is that, that Jesus immobilized his opponents. 
And once Jesus brought the enemy's attack to a halt, now Jesus turned the table around. Now Jesus takes the offensive side against the religious leaders. He's going after them. And it's kind of like Jesus is saying to them, well, you want to play the Q&A game? That's fine by me. Now it's my turn. Now it's my turn to ask questions. And basically in that passage, what Jesus is saying to them as we're going to read carefully these three verses, is basically saying to them, who is really the Messiah? Who's the awaiting Savior of the world? What is his nature? Are you ready to believe what the Scripture says about him? Do you have the courage to seek Him and to know Him? Who is the Christ? Well, why? Why, Jesus, do you ask this question? Why? Because I am He. And to seek me, to know me, to embrace me is the very eternal life itself. It is to be in the kingdom of God. These are by far the most important questions to be asked, right? Can you think of any better question to ask than to know who Christ is. Now the outline for today, Christ's set out role. What is his role? Second, Christ is the son of David. Third, Christ, son of God. So the first point deals with what he is meant to be. And the second two points is who he really is, his nature. So we'll start with Christ's role. What, what does the Scripture mean when it speaks of Christ? What, what is His role in a very general sense? Of course, there's not enough time to go in the very detail of what, who Christ is and His specific role, but in a general sense, what, is that, what does it mean when we say Christ? Well, some, something that Christ is Jesus' surname. Well, no, it's not His surname. It's His title. Right Now we start with verse 35. It says, And Jesus began to say, when it says the word and here, we know just very quickly, um, it's what Jesus is about to say is entirely connected to what he said just earlier. And he began to say, and then immediately after that, it says, as he taught in the temple. So Mark here gives us Jesus' location, where he was. He was still in the same place in the temple as he was teaching. Now, just pause there just for a moment. In that white space between what we just said and the question that Jesus is about to ask, um, the Gospel of Matthew, in the Gospel um, Matthew interjects something important that we need to understand so we can get our hair, our heads around what Jesus is about to ask. In Matthew 22, verse 41, in that white space, as Jesus was teaching, it says here, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. 
So Jesus asked the Pharisees as he was teaching in the temple. The, the Pharisees regrouped, they huddled together, and when they were set in position, Jesus turned to them. He addressed them. And in verse 42, he asked them this question. Asked who? The Pharisees. What do you, Pharisees or scribes, think about the Christ whose son is he? He asked them this question. They said to him, the son of David. Then what Mark does is that he picks up the conversation from this point. And so the implication is now Jesus turns and he faces now the disciples and the crowd that is before him, obviously along with the Pharisees and the scribes. And he says, he says this to them, back in the Gospel of Mark, how is it? that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David. So can you see the chronological order here? How is it that the scribes, just then, when I asked them, their response was that Christ is the son of David? Now, I just want to park here just for a moment. just want to pause um, because there's something to reflect on that is beautiful about Christ. There is a huge difference. We must understand there is a huge difference between the questions that those religious leaders asked Jesus and the questions that Jesus is about to ask. All other questions that the Pharisees asked that were motivated by their hatred towards Christ, that were wicked in their motivation. Jesus' questions here are motivated by his love for the religious leaders in the crowd. We need to understand this. All other questions were intended to trap Jesus and to destroy him. But Jesus' questions were intended to save them. And in an effect, uh, what this means is that this was Jesus' final invitation to the Pharisees, to the scribes and the Sanhedrins, in order for them to embrace Christ as their personal Savior. That's amazing. That is, this is mind-blowing. The heart of Christ. The heart of Christ. What a compassionate Savior. And I wanted to pause here in order for us to reflect the beauty of His mercy and love that overshadow the hatred and the resentments towards Him. Right? I mean, his desire to save even the most antagonistic um, against those that are against him is far more powerful than their desire to kill him. What a beautiful Savior. Jesus never takes pleasure in the death of the wicked. No. As we studied earlier, he weeps over the destruction of the wicked. He aches for every soul to be saved. Right? Now let's continue. Now Jesus turns to the crowd and he asks, How is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? What does Christ mean? Well, Christ in Greek is Christos. Right, Samuel? Christos. Close enough, right? The anointed one. The anointed one. Now, in the Old Testament, 
whenever um, a new king is about to be coronated, is about to be installed in his office to rule and to reign and to exercise his rightful authority as a king, at that moment what happens is um, there would be a public ceremony and then that king would be anointed with oil as a king. As, as the new king. And that applied to all the kings in the Old Testament. And, and that's Christ. That's what Christ basically means. But what Jesus asked here, he didn't say Christ is the son of David. He said the Christ, the son of David. The Christ. Whenever you see the, um, that article, the, um, preceding Christ, it speaks of the Messiah, the chosen one. The official anointed one, the Christ. Now, he's not any other king. He's a unique king. So who is the Christ? Well, what does that mean? If you would have asked a Jew back then, or if you read the Old Testament, what does it mean, the Christ, the awaiting Messiah? Well, let me, let me explain so you can have your head around it to understand in a very general sense his role, what they were anticipating at that time, so that we can see and we can track carefully where, where Jesus was heading with this. See, since the dawn of time, back then all the way to the Garden of Eden when, when our first parents fell into sin and sin entered the world, what happened as a result of that? There was that infinite chasm between God and man, right? And throughout history, we see the effect of sin. We know that. We see that everywhere. We see the wars. We see the fears. We see the earthquakes. And just the whole entire planet is cursed because of sin. Man is corrupt. The earth is corrupt. The whole universe is basically crumbling because of sin. And the collateral damage because of sin is just its enormous, right? It can be felt everywhere, and it can be felt by everyone. You don't have to be a genius. You don't have to live on earth for long uh, in order for you to see the effect of sin. And so what did, you, what did God do? Well, since, uh, long ago, God promised of a coming Messiah. He promised of a coming anointed one, or what, what we say, the Christ. And it's this Christ, this chosen one, he will restore all things. What does that mean? It means he will deliver his people from sin, from God's judgment. He will bring vertical peace between God and man. And he will reign in a millennium kingdom. As a king over all the kings of the earth. And at that point, he will bring horizontal peace between nation and nation, man and man. He's called Prince of Peace. And all the Jews at that time, they were eagerly anticipating the coming of that Christ, the King. In fact, the entire Old Testament can be summed up in that one sentence. The coming of the Christ. The King is coming. The one who will deliver his people is coming. 
So that's his role. That's point number one, the Christ. That's his role, to deliver people from the death and destruction and sin. Now, this Christ must come uh, from someone's loins, right? Uh, Whose descendant is he going to be? This Christ is not going to fall out of the sky. He's going to have to come from someone. Well, who? Let's come to a second point now. Christ is the son of David. Christ is the son of David, which really implies that he's going to have to be 100% human. So we continue in, well, same uh, question. It says here, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is, what? The son of David. Who's saying that? The scribes. Who are the scribes? They were the teachers of the law. So the teachers of the law taught that the Messiah was to come from the line of David. He was going to be the descendant of, da- of David, excuse me, from the house of David. Now, if you, if you get this Messiah, the Mashiach, the Christ, and then you trace back his family tree, you would see that he is from the Davidic line. And the scribes taught that. Now, were they wrong? Well, definitely not. Not at all. How come? Because this truth that he was going to be a son of David is interwoven in the fabric of the Old Testament. It's basically everywhere in the Old Testament. Let me, let me read to you some of those passages. Um, in Second Samuel 7.12, Yahweh here is speaking, God is speaking to David, and he's saying to David in verse 12, When your days are complete, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Well, whose kingdom is it going to be established forever? Certainly not Solomon's kingdom. Solomon's kingdom was not established forever. It's speaking of the Messiah. Psalm 89 verse 3. God says, I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your seed forever and build up your throne to all generations. One more, one more verse. There are heaps of verses, but one more verse here. Isaiah 6, verse 9. In fact, I'll read, uh, sorry, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, 6 and 7. It says, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. Now listen to this. On the throne of David and over his kingdom. He will reign on the throne of David. He will come from the Davidic line. There are many passages. There is Isaiah 11. There is Jeremiah 23. Ezekiel 34. Hosea. Hosea 3. 
It's just basically a, a repeated anthem, if you like, in the Old Testament. So the Old Testament prophesied of the coming Christ, and the coming Christ would have to be 100% human. He will feel what we feel. He will experience what we experience. He's 100% man. And he's going to be belonging to the Davidic line. And the scribe, that scribe, as Jesus said, is the son of David. And the scribes taught that. The scribes taught it. So if that's true, why is Jesus asking his question? Why is he, why is he asking how is it the scribes saying that Christ is the son of David? Was he trying to deny it? No, absolutely not. So Jesus didn't ask that question to deny this truth about the Messiah. No, not at all. Why he was, why he was asking? Because he was trying to elevate their conception of the Messiah. Why? What does that mean? Well, here, here is a problem. The, the, the Jewish, those Jewish people, their problem was not that they believed that Christ was going to be the son of David. That wasn't their problem. Their problem is that they did not believe he was going to be the son of God. That was their problem. Their view of Christ was so erroneous, it was so worldly, and they viewed him through the lens of their selfishness. Rather than um, submitting to what the Scripture says about Christ and how the Scripture defines Christ and His role, their carnal mind led them to be selective hearers of the Word. They were just picking and choosing what kind of Messiah they wanted. And so they reduced Him to only be a human uh, from the Davidic um, line. That's all it was. They didn't care about a Messiah who would deliver them from their sin. They weren't fast. It wasn't really important to them to have a Messiah that would reconcile them to God. What they cared about is a Christ whose role is nothing more than a powerful military leader, uh, an earthly conqueror, if you like, who would deliver Israel from their enemies and establish uh, that promised kingdom so that Israel will be on top. That's all that they cared about. So now, again, the scribes' belief, it, it was correct, but it was incomplete. It was incomplete. It was true, but it was, it was partial. And it fell short of the full answer of the identity of Christ. And so as right as their belief was, it was inadequate to the, the full understanding of who Christ is and what his role was meant to be. And Jesus here in this passage, in this question, it was meant to help to elevate their view of Christ. So Jesus' question was meant to force them to take this extra step forward to explain that truth about the identity of Jesus. Why? Because Jesus Christ is not only the son of David, he's also the son of God. So we'll come to the third point, the son of God. 
Second point, he's a son of David. Second point, he's a son of God. Now, uh, the question that he asked, Jesus asked, it was just a set-up question. He was warming himself up for the knockout punch of that second question he's about to ask. Now, we read in verse 36, and please pay attention to the brilliance, to the genius of God in flesh as he was preparing a way to reveal the identity of Christ. Verse 36, he says here, David himself said in the Holy Spirit. So David being inspired by the Holy Spirit, and he says, the Lord said to my Lord. Now this this is a quote, believe it or not, it's taken from the Psalm, Psalm 110 that we just read this morning, and we'll expose it in the evening. So I'm not going to go into great detail and expose it in the Psalm now, but we just suffice to say, to see that it's referring to Psalm 110. And when it says there, David himself said, the Lord said to my Lord, meaning David here is overhearing a conversation, right? He's not really involved directly in it. Uh, it's, It's written in a third person. So who's this conversation between? The Father and the Son. It's an inter-Trinitarian dialogue. And God permitted David here to tap into the unforbidden space between God the Father and God the Son. And God here inspired David to pen down this conversation. He's hearing God the Father addressing God the Son. And would I, can I just ask you, go to Psalm 110. We just want to look at that first verse. Psalm 110. Because something important that we need to see in, 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 in your Bible, um, in the Old Testament, that you cannot see in, in, um, in Mark. In Psalm 110 and verse 1. It says this, the Lord says to my Lord. Now, in, in the Gospel of Mark, you, they look identical. But what do you see here when you read it? The first word, Lord, L-O-R-D, are all capital. So what is that referring to? Yahweh, right? It's referring to Yahweh. And that, in that context here, it speaks of God the Father. Now, the second word, Lord says, to my Lord, that's L is capital. And that is translated as Adonai, master, owner. Just basically, generally speaking, it's master or owner. But what's interesting is if you read the Old Testament, you find that every time this word Adonai appears within the same text as God, it always refers exclusively to God always refers to God. And this makes perfect sense because in the presence of God, right, all other titles of all human beings just turn into dust. They just flatten to the ground. Let me give you some examples. Psalm 115, verse 7. Tremble, O earth, before the Lord Adonai, before the God of Jacob. Psalm 97, verse 5. 
the mountains melted like wax at the presence of Yahweh, at the presence of Adonai, the whole earth, of the whole earth. So when, when you go back to Psalm 110 and verse 1, when it says, the Lord says to my Lord, and in fact what this is saying is, God said to my God. That's amazing. That's, that's a knockout punch to all the Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons, if they really understand this. And, and by the way, just the, the reason for the differentiation of words is just to show that there are two distinct persons in the Godhead, yet they're both co-equal, co-eternal, one in essence. And if you don't believe me, we'll, we'll just move on and we'll continue reading. Please go back to um, Mark now, Mark verse 37. We'll see the continuation of the text, which is still the same as in, in Psalms 110. The Father says to the Son, look how they're both co-equal now. Sit at, where? My right hand. Sit at my right hand. What does that mean? Well, obviously it's not literal right hand. God the Father does not have a right hand. And Jesus is sitting at that right hand. That's not what it means. It's a picture. And what's it speaking of? Well, this, when you read it carefully, it actually speaks of Jesus' coronation. It's, it's the reception of Christ to enter into the throne room of the Father and to sit in a position equal level to the Father, such that there will be co-equal sovereignty, dual authority, to sit at my right hand. This is what it means. And by the way, can I say, this uh, was definitely fulfilled in, in Jesus Christ exactly 55 days after this d discussion that he had with the scribe. On, on Friday was his death. Sunday was his resurrection. Uh, 50 days later, the Pentecost was his ascension to the highest of heaven. And, and at that moment, the command came forth, um, to the locked-up gates of heaven to be lifted up. This is what uh, Psalm 24 refers to when it says, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? None other but Jesus Christ. The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. You can just imagine the scene, the celebration as Jesus Ascends into the highest of heaven. The angels will be flapping their wings and crying Hosanna in the highest. And all the redeemed saints of the Old Testament, you know, they were all celebrating. Why? This Jesus, the Christ, entered the royal room 
and he assumed his position. He sat on the throne, triumphing over sin, over Satan, over death. So this was the coronation of Jesus Christ, and what an amazing scene it was. To sit at my right hand. To sit at the right hand of the king. And to sit at the right hand of the king is to assume the same level of sovereignty. There is no higher authority to claim than to sit at the right hand of God. It's to receive equal honor as God's honor. And if that is not enough, Jesus continues and he reminds those scribes of the nature of this Christ. And he says, until your enemies beneath your feet. So this Messiah, this king has enemies. We see that. And who are the enemies, by the way, of, those, of the Christ? Well, reading the New Testament, we know who they are. We know who they are. Not in person, of course, but in category. Luke 19, verse 27, it says, But these enemies of mine, who what? Did not want me to reign over them. Bring them here and slay them in my presence. Who are the enemies? It's those who refuse to believe in the Son. They refuse to rest in the Son because they love to live an autonomous life. And what happens to the enemies of Christ? It says, until I put your enemies beneath your feet. What's that picture of? This picture of total dominance beneath your feet. It speaks of total supremacy. As all the enemies of Christ prostrate themselves, laying flat before the king with their hands, their noses, their, their feet are touching the floor as Christ himself places his heel on their necks before he slays them. He speaks of perfect control. Preeminence, matchless dominance. This is this is huge. This is awesome. And it speaks of nothing else but the divinity of Christ, the Son of God. Then Jesus here finishes with the upper punch question. Here, let's read it together, verse thirty seven. David himself calls him what? Lord. So in what sense is he his son? What does that mean? If David himself, this great king of old, if he calls him, calls whom? The coming Messiah. What does he call him? Lord. My Lord. And the implication here, obviously, is that if David knew that the Messiah who is coming out of his loins will be co-equal with God 
in status, in authority, then go back to the first question. How is it that the scribes say that Christ is just David's son? You see that? Again, look at it. David himself calls him what? Lord. Now that word Lord here, remember? It's the word Adonai. And he refers to David here speaking of the coming Messiah as my Lord, his Lord. David said, my Lord. Now let me ask you a question. What father out there that would ever call his own son my Adonai? I mean, it doesn't make sense. Come here, Adonai. <laughs> Go give me a glass of water. My Adonai. doesn't make sense. One would expect the exact opposite. It's the sons, the children that will call their parents Adonai, not vice versa. But if David here certainly didn't think that Jesus was just a descendant of his, far more than that, no, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, under the guidance of God, if David, whom you appeal to, whom you honor and you respect, if he realized that Christ would be God in human flesh, if, if David knew that Christ's kingdom will have no end and all respect and honor are due to him, such that, that in Psalm 110, David was worshiping that Messiah, if all that is true, how then are the scribes saying that Christ just merely a man and not God himself? You see, the genius of Jesus, and he wants to conclude here, is that Christ is the Son of God. So Christ's role is to deliver the world from hostility and to bring everlasting peace. Christ is the son of David. That's the second point. He's 100% human. And Christ is the son of God. And Jesus is that Christ. There's a reason why, by the way, in the, in the, book of, uh, in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, Matthew puts the, down the gene, genealogy of Jesus and he traces his genealogy uh, through um, Joseph all the way to David. And in the Gospel of Luke, what is amazing is that Luke um, traces Jesus' genealogy through Mary, his mother, mother, again, all the way to David. And it, that means if there was monarchy at that time of Jesus, Jesus would have been appointed as the king of Israel purely by, because of um, his line. His family tree trace it back, whether his father or mother, and they trace back all the way back to David. And the Jews knew about that, by the way, because I don't know if you know this, but they kept all the, all the records of the family tree, if you like, in the temple. You know, a priest would never marry two people unless he had their records 
um, proven in the temple that both of them uh, are Jews. So Jesus is the son of David. Now, see, here is the thing. Mark, in this passage, he doesn't answer the question. He didn't answer this question that Jesus presented, right? He left it unanswered. But we can see where Jesus was heading with this. You know what Jesus was heading with this? Jesus was lifting up the veil of his divinity before the crowd. And Jesus, the God-man, yes, he is the son of David, but he's also the son of God. Yes, he is David's son, but he's also David's Lord. See the unfathomable, undescribable, Jesus Christ, truly God and truly man. Jesus is human in every way, except without sin. We know that. He he was hungry, he was thirsty, he got tired, he slept, he experienced pain and suffering, just like any man would. He he felt joy, he felt grief, he he loved, he, he was angry, he was sorrowful yet without sin, and all other human emotions that we would experience. In in Hebrews 2, verse 17, it says, Therefore he, that's Jesus, had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. He had to be like us in every way, so that he would rightly represent us before the Father. Right? My brothers and sisters, let's not be mistaken. Brothers, Jesus Christ is God in every way. All divine names and titles were applied to Jesus. You read in the New Testament, you find that Jesus is called God. Mighty God. The great God, God over all, the Lord of Sabbath, the Holy One, Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. All divine attributes are ascribed to Him. Let me give you examples. God is everywhere, right? Matthew 28 verse 20, Jesus says, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. God is all-knowing. John 2.24, it says, Jesus knew all men. And in verse 25, Jesus himself knew what was in man. God is all-powerful, right? Philippians chapter 3.21 by the exertion of the power that Jesus has even to subject all things to himself. Jesus subjects all things. And the Bible tells us that Jesus upholds all things, created all things. He is before all things. That's all powerful. Can you think of any more power than that? Unchangeable. God is immutable, right? God never changes. Hebrews 13, 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, 
and today and forever. Another one, absolute sovereignty is only ascribed to God. Yes? Matthew 28, 18. All authority has been given to me, to Jesus Christ, in heaven and on earth. So as we conclude, let me ask a question and I'll answer it. What was Jesus trying to say by asking this question? What was he trying to say? How does this fit in that narrative of the gospel of Mark? I believe what Jesus was doing here is that he was answering all the four questions that were asked. All those four questions that were thrown at him, the, the personal, the political, the scriptural, all of them. Let's start with the first question. And we'll finish with that, by the way, just the four questions. The Sanhedrin, they came to Jesus, and the first question they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? And by Jesus presenting his two questions to them, basically he was saying, since I am the God-man, it is my divine, my unrivaled, unchallenged, supreme authority I do these things. And if you won't submit to it, you will soon find your neck under my heel. The Pharisees came to him and they asked him, is it lawful to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? And what Jesus was saying to them is that since I am the God-man, I'm your creator, and it is my inscription, my image that is imprinted into your heart. I own your family, your life, your clothes, the very breath you're breathing, your, your hair, your very DNA, your gold and silver are mine. So render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and render to me the things that are mine. And the Sadducees came. And they were kind of asking a question about resurrection and saying, how does resurrection make any sense? <laughs> Only fools believe in life after death. And Jesus, in effect, is saying to them, well, since I am the God-man, I am eternal, I am the eternal life. I am the giver of life. I give abundant life. I am the resurrection and life. And if you don't believe in me, you will forever be sad, Jesus. Miserable. And the scribe came along. And the scribe asked him a question about the law. What commandment is the foremost of all, Jesus? And so Jesus' response was, since I am, what? God-man, the dual God-man, God wrapped in flesh. So therefore, 
It is I, Jesus Christ, that you shall love with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength, just as it is I, Jesus Christ, that you shall love as yourself, since I am your neighbor. And Mr. Scribe, not until you, re- you realize that I am He, not until the veil is lifted up and scales fall off your eyes of your souls, not until the light of my glory shines forth and pierces your heart and penetrates even the darkest black corners of your being, Mr. Scribe, You may be so close to the kingdom, but if you don't know me, you're infinitely away from your salvation. The Lord Jesus Christ is the Lord of this spaceless, fabulous, infinite universe, the God who dwells in an unapproachable light. Jesus is this eternal son whose kingdom has no end and with a click of a finger all the spines of all of his enemies would snap in half. Jesus who is the source of the and the very essence of all pleasure, true pleasure, true satisfaction that mighty God can descend to be cloaked in a lowly human flesh. He was born as a hated Jew in a filthy stable and was counted as the scum of the earth, criminal. Why? In order to bear your sins and my sin so that he would show us the love of God. What an amazing contrast just to show us the love of God and the heart that God has for his people. Oh, the mercy of Christ to carry the sins of wicked people as us and the power of Christ to be able to forgive those that come to him. His mercy and his power kissed together on the cross And brought forth salvation. I pray that you would look unto him. You know, your saving faith will not save you. Do you know that? You may rest in him. You may cleave in him. You may may depend on him. But your dependence is not the source of your salvation. It is Christ that is the source of your salvation. You must look unto Christ. And see him as who he truly is. The son of David, yes. But he's also the son of God. Have you looked upon Christ? Do you see Christ? Do you behold Christ? As the source of your life. And the very purpose of your entire existence. I pray that none of us would leave this room before they look upon Christ with that look of salvation.
Amen? Let's pray. Lord God, <clears throat> what a marvelous text. We praise you, Lord, that when you looked at us in our hopeless and helpless state, you didn't shrug your shoulders and left us to die in our sins, but you came in the person of Jesus. Would you please, Lord, lift up that veil that is covering his beauty and his satisfaction so that we would see him as you, Father, see Christ, so that we would look upon Christ and say, this is my beloved Savior. This is my beloved Lord in whom I am well pleased. This is our beloved Redeemer in whom is all our satisfaction and joy and delight. We beg you, Lord, to do the work that only you can do, Lord. Sin and the devil, entertainment are robbing us from enjoying Christ, the busyness and the worldly problems. Cover Christ and cloud and obstruct our view. How we beg you, Lord, remove all those obstructions so that we would see Christ and enjoy him. Let our necks be in his bosom rather than to be at his feet. In Jesus' name, amen.